I got given the request of praying over uh, someone who had just been in a car accident. Mm. And so I prayed and I prayed the phrase, God, I know that everything happens uh, for a reason. And in that moment, I had a theological like, I don't actually believe that. I actually wrestled with that probably between 16 and 20 years old. Like, do I believe that? Do I have to believe that? Mm -hmm. Is that required? Not all questions are bad. A lot of them are actually really good. We don't need Mm -hmm. to be intimidated. Welcome to your Pastor Reads Books. I'm your host, Heather Weber, and today my guest is Dave Hagen, lead pastor of Carroll First Church in Carroll, Iowa. Our conversation is inspired by Philip Yancey's beautiful memoir, Where the Light Fell, and his experience of growing up in rebellion against the faith he received from his mother before finally experiencing God's grace for the first time. Dave and I also talk about the kind of thriving generational faith that needs permission to ask questions, doubt, search, and pray honestly so that grace can become real. After an experience at Bible camp around age 10, my guest, Dave, grew up sensing a call into pastoral ministry. He and his high school sweetheart, Ashley, married and have been ministering at various churches in Wisconsin and Minnesota before moving to Iowa with their four sons to pastor in Carroll. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dave, welcome to the show. Heather, it's great to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, You're kind of a new acquaintance of mine. We just met fairly recently, and I've just enjoyed getting to know a little bit about you and your ministry background. And one of the interesting things that I learned about you just in the last few weeks is that you were homeschooled. And it really stood out to me because... Um, in June, Amazon released this docu-series called Shiny Happy People, which kind of looked at the Duggar family and like Bill Gothard Ministries. And um, a lot of the interviewees who were in that circle talked about their negative experiences of homeschooling uh, that prevented them from learning things that a student in the public school system would learn. Like for instance, um, in the series and also just in stories of people that I've read online, um, I learned that girls' education sometimes was specifically limited because of this belief that, you know, women didn't need higher level math, like beyond fractions, because they were just going to cook and, and be moms. And obviously that's not everyone's homeschool experience. Uh, I was homeschooled for like a year. I homeschooled a couple of my daughters for a few years when they were really young. And I just wanted to saturate them with learning. But when I learned you were homeschooled, I wanted to know, Dave, what was that experience like for you? And maybe how did that shape you as a reader as well? Absolutely. So yeah, my my parents, I homeschooled all the way through from kindergarten, all all the way through graduation. Uh, Their reason for doing so was they just didn't um, they didn't like exactly what they were seeing uh, from families that had kids in public school, so they selected to homeschool us. I have an older sister uh, who was homeschooled at the same time as I. Uh, she's a year and a half older than me, and then I have a brother who's seven years younger than me and a uh, younger sister who's 12 years younger than me. So uh, different ages going on all at the same time. Um, it was a really, really positive experience for me. Uh, you know, there are certain things that probably um, made education a little bit different 
Um, I, in some ways it made me very ready for college to know, um, that you have to do a lot of things on your own. You have to sit down and hmm. read things and you just learn how to, to study on your own. Um, that is helpful. Um, I probably wasn't as good at taking tests and things like that. I didn't have to do as much of that, that through homeschooling. So there were hmm. certain things that I felt more prepared for in certain ways that, uh, I could have used more preparation. Hmm. Um, but it was a really, really good, healthy way for me to, to learn. Um, I did end up lo- loving books. Um, in high school, I started reading a ton of C.S. Lewis um, and not any of his fiction. So like Mere Christianity and Problem of Pain. And uh, it, you know, it, it just kind of set me on a, a course of loving theology Mm-hmm. And um, being fascinated by philosophy, um, stuff like that. So, uh, and homeschooling in that sense was great. Um, they did one of the best things my parents did in for homeschooling was uh, they had me involved in all types of things. So I loved basketball growing up, mm-hmm. and I got to play a ton of basketball, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be through the Y. Um, I played for a couple of Christian schools. I got to play um, for a real small Christian school in Eau Claire. And uh, it was just a really positive experience. Um, So they had that sense of like, we want to uh, protect and mold our kid, but it wasn't such an isolation of you're not doing anything or you're only doing Mm. our thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that was really, really positive actually. So um, and I felt like that prepared me uh, to to see the world differently or through maybe not such a narrow perspective. So, mm. so I, I think it accomplished a lot of what they were looking for, right? A Christian-based education. And um, one that was pretty open. One that was pretty open. Is that what you said? Sorry. Yeah. I, think, I think I lost you for just a second. Yeah. Uh, that's really neat. One of the things that you remind me of is that when there's homeschooling going on, you can get your required work done sometimes a lot faster than you do when you're in a class with 25 or 30 students. And my kids had a lot of extra time to just explore new things and do new things. And so it's really cool to hear how you were able to just follow your passion and your interest in high school and not only play basketball and be busy with that, but read theology while you're a high school student. It was fun. It was, um, it was a neat approach to it. Uh, and my brother, so when he was in high school, my parents took an even more like literature based approach to his Mm -hmm. learning. So, um, less textbooks and more just books in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was a really interesting way for, to, for him to learn. And it was kind of fun for, I was in college at that point, but just Mm. kind of talking to Matt about uh, how he was learning and things like that. It was, it was a really neat approach. Uh, Matt is now one of the uh, smartest people when it comes to history, because he read a ton of history from different perspectives. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So like you said, the way your parents did it, it wasn't that 
you know, what you read had to be like exactly what they would want to read if they were 15 or whatever, but you were exposed to so much. So like, how do you think that shapes your perspective differently than like, you know, other people that you encounter who maybe didn't have that experience? So in terms of like homeschooling, I'm going to answer it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And to even go back to the, shiny happy people uh docuseries um when we try to control exactly what's going on um it's easy to all of a sudden um when you realize that you've been controlled there's a very easy decision to i'm going to push back against this Mm. um when we make rules um out of things that aren't necessarily designed to be rules um or laws for biblical laws of things that maybe aren't truly biblical laws and we make them equal to other things. Um, all of a sudden you start reading scripture on your own and you go, well, that's, that seems to be an embellishment of what the truth is. Uh, you, you can start to push back against that. I was thinking through uh, today as I was preparing for this, knowing that we'd have some of this conversation mm-hmm. of, uh, how many of my friends growing up. So in our homeschool group, how many of them still have faith and how many of them really struggled on the, on the outside of high school. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, I think through our students in youth ministry too, and there's a lot of students uh, over the years who, um, were, had faith, were exposed to faith. And then after graduation kind of walked away from it. And, uh, I think some of that is when you, you are learning for yourself um, you have you have a faith that is maybe it's your parents that it starts off with as it develops into your own. You have to work on defining uh, what it is and, and what you want to hold on to and what you let go of. Um, I think the process that we um, used for for myself, or at least uh, what I what I was embracing, was um, like the ability to make it your own is important. Mm. And, um, and my parents, they, they really did a good job of allowing that. Um, and I, I, my parents, her church growing up, like it is, it really is a community of, of people. You just realize of like, it's okay to ask some of those questions. Um, not all questions are bad. A lot of them are actually really good. We don't need Mm. to be intimidated by, uh, students asking questions. I can remember uh, as a youth group, we were praying, uh, you know, doing uh, prayer time together and we were praying over prayer requests. And, um, you know, I got given the request of praying over uh, someone who had just been in a car accident. Mm. And so I prayed and I prayed the phrase, God, I know that everything happens uh, for a reason, that nothing happens (laughs) outside of your will. And in that moment, I had a theological, like, I don't actually believe that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the community that we were with didn't, I mean, I didn't stop praying and be like, hold on, guys, I don't believe this. (laughs) Yeah. But over the next few years, I actually wrestled with that, probably between 16 and 20 years old. Like, do I believe that? Do I have to believe that? Mm-hmm. Is that required? And um, actually, which leads, we'll have maybe some of that discussion, but uh, the mm. book that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, he 
he deals with some of those things, not so much in this book, uh, but in his other writings. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's not super common for a, a, a church community to nurture a space where you feel like it's okay to ask those sorts of questions. And even for adults, right? Like we don't always see spaces where adults feel comfortable doing that, or they might be silenced right away. So that's a very cool experience to have been able to have the freedom to do that at a young yeah. age. And you're right. It does kind of tie into the book that we're talking about today. So would you go ahead and introduce the book? Yeah. Uh, so recently I've been doing, I know I said that in high school, I was reading a lot of like C.S. Lewis and theology. Um, recently I've been doing a lot of like memoirs and uh, biographies. Uh, and so I picked up Where the Light Fell. Uh, which is an autobiography or a memoir, probably would be better to say that by uh, author named Philip Yancey. And uh, yeah, I've been a fan of his writing uh, for a while. Uh, he's got books of like what what's so amazing about grace, and um, he's got another one that's about pain and the question of pain. And, and he he is an author who asks questions, and so uh, he. When I picked up the memoir, um, it's just been interesting to hear his story of growing up in America, uh, in the South, and um, just the story of his life. And so many times when we 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 read authors or people who are who impact us, we kind of assume that they're brilliant and that their lives are really nice and clean. Um, and it it's refreshing to also know that. Uh, one, they are brilliant, but two, uh, their lives are not always as clean as we'd imagine them or their family or their upbringing mm. was not, um, not perfect. And, uh, and God works in, in the, in all of our lives, in the, the great things and in the difficult things. Um, and after going through, uh, this, this book, a lot of his other books started to make sense of like mm. why he wrote so much about pain or why grace was such a big deal to him. And mm. um, yeah, it was just very interesting. So one of the things he writes about uh, in the book is he had a very strange relationship with his mom. And uh, I, I was thinking about this. Uh, it comes through in the book that she was an absolutely incredible Bible teacher. So uh, I believe, I believe she is still alive or passed recently, but there's just been a, a mm. few funerals that I've been at um, where people know the deceased in one fashion, right? So I imagine uh, so many people know her as this incredible Bible teacher who absolutely changed their life. And that is true about her. And it is also true that she did some pretty uh, harmful things to both of her sons. And that, that can all be true, which is still the testimony of God's grace that our lives, it's a little bit of both, right? Like some people will know me as, uh, someone who is incredibly faithful and other people will know me as someone who struggled with doubts at times. Like those things are true. Um, and I've enjoyed that about the book. Hmm. What other themes are prominent in his story? Uh, the story, story starts out uh, and he's talking about his parents. So his dad was a 
uh, a preacher, and I think he would use the phrase preacher, um, uh, a preacher down in, uh, I think it was Atlanta area. And uh, he and his uh, mom felt a call to missions and they were going to uh, go to Africa. So the uh, story starts off with his dad uh, being struck with polio and he is in, uh, he's in the iron lung. Um, and they decide that it is time for him to be removed from the iron lung. So they go through this process of like convincing the medical staff to release him like an hour a day. And then they, so Dave, I don't even know what the iron lung really is. Do you? Well, I mean, I, like, I looked it's up some, some contraption. Pictures. Okay. It's like a contraption that helps, helps people breathe. Yes. Is that what it yeah. is? I don't exactly like, know how, but it's got to like compress okay. and then allow air in or force, but it's not over their face. Their head is the only thing that is sticking out. Uh, wow. But it sounds like it's actually hard to breathe once you get removed. Like it, mm. um, right. So medical novice here. Don't don't fact check this or please do. Uh, it sounds like it breathes for you or forces your body to breathe. But then once you get removed, mm. you almost have to relearn or not relearn it, but your mm. your body has to get used to doing it again. So they yeah. talked but, him into letting him out for different periods of time. And then finally, they decided um, they were going to have like a faith approach. Like we are believing for healing we are taking him out of the hospital. Mm. And uh, as a Pentecostal, like they took this incredible step of faith. And now I grew up without a dad. Like mm. that is the result. Um, so uh. it, it was a matter of days since they removed him. You know, they took a step of faith. They had this many people praying. And um, it was days from there that, uh, that mm. um, his dad passed away and, um, he talks about how his mom's response to that, uh, was to, uh, be like Hannah and offer her boys to God. Um, so Philip and his brother offer them to God as like a replacement for their life and mission. And so, uh, just all of the weight that these boys ended up carrying, it's like, well, we weren't able to fulfill what God called on us. So you you either get to or have to. Now, I would mm. assume she'd probably say get to. But as Philip at least heard it and believed it and lived it, he seems like he would say we have to. Mm. You know, I read this a while back. So just even you like sort of recapping some of the inciting incidents of his family story is just intense it, it really uh, is. just to imagine that weight. And I think like the beginning of the book starts with him actually finding out why his dad died, that he, he, you know, died because he took this quote unquote, like stand of faith and it killed yeah. him. Yeah. He found like a news article or something about it. And it was just like, he didn't have to like, him yeah. realizing like this didn't have to be the outcome, mm-hmm. but it was. I could have had a dad. Yeah, steps of faith are good and important. And as a Pentecostal, I'm going, yeah, 
God does heal and, and we can stand on it at times and uh, we shouldn't doubt his abilities. And, and so there's that, that wrestle um, theologically that I think we're supposed to have. I think we should wrestle with it. We don't have iron lungs anymore. And there are probably other ways that, you know, the medical community can gauge whether someone's ready to be removed from life support or a ventilator, things like that. So I don't even know if there's like a good modern day parallel to what they did. I guess like if you're told you have cancer and you need to do a treatment uh, of chemotherapy and radiation and you just decide not to do those things, that might be a modern day parallel where there are some people who would say, I'm just praying. I'm not going to get the treatment. Um, as a pastor, have you had to like counsel people in any of those situations or are like you super careful? Yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't say that I probably had to counsel someone in making those decisions. Um, mm. I mean, there have been a few people, uh, who we've pastored who have had cancer diagnosis and, um, you know, well, talking with them, praying with them on what steps they want to take. And those things are all different based on life and possible outcomes. And in a lot of ways, I try not to tell people what they should do. Very rarely will I lean into, this is what, I, this is what you should do. Because um, I do believe the Holy Spirit speaks to people all of the time um, in their own ways. And, and sometimes people choose to speak to me or through me to them. But a lot of the times I think it's important for people to listen. Um, so I try not to jump mm -hmm. into things as the voice of God for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, through COVID, there were, there were times, um, oh, I don't remember exactly how I'd phrase it, but like, yes, we trust God through all of it. You know, there, we don't need to be afraid. Um, we also don't need to play in the street of like, like we don't just choose to put ourselves into to danger just to choose to put ourselves mm -hmm. into danger. However, right. right um, if God called you to uh, take care of people with COVID, we also don't live in fear of it either. Right. But we don't necessarily just go testing it just to test it. So I don't know if that's a good parallel or not, but right. Yeah, no, I think it is. And it, it reminds me of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness where the enemy's like, why don't you just throw yourself off the roof of the temple? You know, like you'll be fine yeah. if you're God, you know, if you have faith, Jesus, you know, and Jesus obviously didn't think that was a good yeah. idea, um, probably for various reasons. But Dave, say more about how the book impacted you and contributed to your own growth in following Christ? There's this absolutely incredible moment. Um, he, so Philip is in Bible college, but he is having an outright um, crisis of faith. Uh, it's his relationship with his mom has really deteriorated. He is attempting to break every rule at the school. Like that is a goal that he set out. Um, and he was talking about they would go places and they had to pray. They had to be in these small groups for prayer. And um, so he, he and these two guys, they would get together. I think it was weekly for prayer. And he said it always went the same exact way. 
This one guy would pray and the other guy would pray. They'd pause and wait in silence. Philip would never pray. And then they would close and go their separate ways. And uh, he, he would just give an assignment to talk about how, uh, tell me a time where the Bible spoke to you. And at this time in his faith, he was like, I don't know if the Bible ever has spoken to me. I don't know if the Bible is capable of speaking to me. I don't mm. know if I believe any of this. And so prayer time starts and his one friend prays, the other guy prays. And then all of a sudden he goes, I started praying to which they both were kind of astonished and amazed. And he, uh, he prays a very honest prayer about, uh, when God, you tell us the story of the Good Samaritan, and um, I don't, you tell us that we're supposed to love people and care for people like the Good Samaritan did, but I don't. I don't care, and I, I'm trying to remember, but I think he said something like, I don't care if people go to hell. I don't care mm-hmm. about any of this. Um, so, like, one of those prayers that uh, mm. If you're in the room when someone is praying like that, you're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. Those prayers are, they're good. And when you're in that spot, it's go ahead and pray that way. It's, it's okay. Because it's at least allowing yourself to be honest. So mm-hmm. uh, he is honest in that moment. And he, he talks about how God showed him. So he'd always thought through that. Uh, parable that story Jesus told as how we need to be like the good Samaritan but he goes he got a an image and a picture of it was him who was on the road beaten and it was him who had Hmm. uh, who had been robbed and beaten and Jesus was now uh, the good Samaritan looking at him and saying I am I'm picking you up I am rescuing you And how that moment absolutely challenged and changed his life and his understanding of faith and grace and and how he just came back, back to God. So then he goes back to class and he is rightfully known as a problem student in both chapel and uh, he made a big deal in the book about talking about how when he was in chapel he was reading like popular magazines at the time like it was like this big rebellious thing and, and what what decade was this like the 70s yeah, or something I think it was probably the 60s okay so like christian bible college in the 60s and he's reading yeah like time magazine or whatever it was that was Which, yeah it would have been a no-no yeah, absolutely yeah. scandalous. And so, um, and so he offered to read his paper and just going through um, telling the story. And then he said, please don't congratulate me. Please don't um, try to celebrate this moment for me. Because he talks about how mm. it was obvious that you know, if you had just made up the right testimony, how you can get like Bible school cred. Mm, street exactly, cred and Bible which school. Which is a different thing, mm-hmm. but it's real. And uh, <laughs> he, he was like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't need it. Um, 
but God finally spoke to me. And uh, it, I just, that feeling of, of God's grace is so incredible. Um, you know, growing up, I, I, like we talked about, I was allowed to, to think and to question and to, to work through things. Um, but I don't, I don't think I understood grace so much until I felt like I really needed it. Um, like I was a, a really pretty well-behaved kid who didn't mm. really want to break any rules. And um, mm. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't classify myself as an overachiever or an underachiever, just pretty normal. Um, and you start to experience some failures and you start to realize that, that God's grace rescues you no matter what position or location. And it's this um, weight that's off your shoulders that, that it is not about your performance. It is about his love and grace for you. Now, you know, obviously as Christians, we attempt to live for God. Um, but his love for us doesn't change regardless of where we're at. And so all of a sudden finding the, seeing yourself like, like he did. I, I wouldn't say that I had a moment where I saw myself as the person who was beaten. But just that, that sense of I have not left you or abandoned you. No matter what you've gone through or what you were doing. No matter if you felt like you had your life together and all of a sudden you don't or um, success or failure that he's with you. Um, and then, so as a, as a person that resonates so much as a pastor, it is one of my most favorite things to see somebody have their eyes opened when it comes to grace. Um, mm. A couple of years ago, uh, we had, we had this family start attending our church and, uh, so their, their son um, started coming with their neighbors. And when I say son, uh, Mikey is, um, he's in his 40s. Uh, so Mikey lives mm -hmm. at home with his parents. And uh, his, his neighbors attend our church. And uh, they started to invite Mikey to church. And then uh, pretty soon, uh, Mikey's mom starts coming with. And they both give their hearts to Jesus. And they they're both are uh, finding this new freedom. And then... Uh, Mikey's dad uh, comes to church on Easter Sunday two years ago. And it's one of those moments that I will never forget uh, because he comes up to me after church. And if I'm being honest, I was a little disappointed in our Easter attendance. Like I don't get real into like attendance numbers and I try not to get my value based on all those things. But I would have to say like, I was kind of hoping we'd have more people in church that Easter Sunday. Mm. And uh, so I'm walking off the, the little stage we have and uh, Larry comes up to me with just like tears streaming down his face. And he goes, what else do I have to do? Like, I just, mm -hmm. I, I want to do it. What else do I have to do? And I just remember being like, mm -hmm. Larry, you just gotta be like, you, you, you just asked Jesus to be your savior. There you go. Accept it. And I hugged him. Let him save yeah. you. I hugged him and just like the tears uh, streaming down his face. 
And, um, you know, Larry's, mm-hmm. Larry's in his right around, probably right around 70 years old. Um, mm-hmm. and that's like the first time in his life that he had experienced or had grace awaken for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's beautiful. And it was like that moment for me of God being like, yeah, today was for him. You don't, you don't need the big crowds. Like, mm-hmm. Larry today. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good with Larry. Like, that's awesome. Um, yeah, those are, those are, uh, those are incredible moments. It's beautiful. You know, in every age, it seems there is some pocket of the church that is caught up in maybe the opposite of grace, which is legalism. I don't know if that's really the opposite of grace, but like a more pharisaical focus on rules and, you know, like doing all the right things in order to be in God's good graces. I'm just reading about like the age of Christendom when the church was, you know, in power with the state and the ways in which, you know, uh, reformed clergy would just go after lay people and punish them for not, not following like all of the practices and doctrines correctly and not getting their kids baptized. And, um, there is some version of that in the church today in America, all over the world, but in America, even in Iowa, probably you encounter it in Carol. And so like as a pastor, how do you, like, what does it look like for you to steer? I don't even know if this is a good question, but to like steer people away from that mindset. Well, and like, how does that, how did those opportunities show up for so, you? Uh, okay. So um, as soon as I got a pastor, we come out of the uh, holiness movement in terms of our history. So Methodists, mm. you know, you can kind of follow that through to, uh, the Assemblies of God and the Pentecostal movement. With that is this incredible heartbeat of we will not let anything separate us from God. Like I will not, I don't want anything in my life that can separate me from him, mm-hmm. um, which is beautiful. Generation number one, maybe even generation number two, it's still beautiful. Mm. By generation number three, it sounds like you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't watch movies, you can't do any of these things. Because if you do and Jesus comes back, you won't go with him. Mm. Uh, so first thing I try to do is um, I try to just kind of gently call it out. Uh, you just kind of got to state some of that stuff of like one generational Christians, we have challenges. The challenge of having it move from my grandma's faith to my mom's faith, to my parents' faith, to my faith. uh, That is, that is a challenge. And it is um, that handoff can't just be here. It is, here's your, your perfect package of what you should believe um, mm. because each of us take it and we will shake it and we'll uh, try to figure out exactly what do we hold to? Why do we hold on to it? At least I hope that's what we do. Um, yeah. Because then faith really is real. Um, mm. And that is a hard thing as generations continue. And so 
um, as a youth pastor, as a lead pastor, as a parent, just trying to be like, what do you, you know, what part of faith really is your own? Uh, it wasn't that long ago. Um, I started messaging some of our former students when we youth pastored and they're adults now and having kids and getting married and, you know, working jobs and, some of them are in ministry and some of them are not. Some of them are Christians and some of them are not. Um, and I tried to ask a bunch of questions um, to just be like, what do you hold on to? What, uh, what did you love about your time in youth group and what mm. did you not? Um, mm. Is your faith still real to you? And if so, what what parts of it? Is there things that that you've let go of things that you've held on to. And it was just getting the responses were really, mm. really interesting. And, you know, not every, not every, I wasn't able to ask every student, not every student, I think felt um, like they wanted to necessarily engage all of the topics or questions, but it was, mm-hmm. but it was really interesting because um, the varied responses and, and where they are in life. But, um, but I think, when we're when we're not willing to allow questions, we set up barriers and we're setting uh, people up for pushback. When there isn't any wiggle room mm-hmm. in um, kind of understanding what we believe. Um, now, there's there's right who Jesus is. Um, there's like a, a balance to what is inside of Christianity and what is outside of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But Jesus feels pretty comfortable in letting people come to him and being very honest with him about where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been the approach that I just go like, let's, let's just try to be as real to who we mm-hmm. are and our thoughts and our beliefs Take them to Jesus. Take them, ask the Holy Spirit to really show us and then wrestle through all of the stuff that comes up. And um, it is less about rules and it's more about who Jesus is and, and, and what does it mean for him to be Lord of our life? How do we dedicate all aspects to him way beyond simply what we do or don't do? But to how we yeah, think. like the smoking, exactly <laughs> the smoking and the dancing and the chewing, yeah. right? Um, I really liked what you said about how generational faith has some problems because a lot of times I, you know, only hear the positives about generational faith being passed, you know, kind of like a baton to the next generation. And you even see examples in scripture of, you know, Timothy's you know, is it his grandmother, Timothy's grandmother and yeah. And, and mother who he inherited the faith from. And sometimes I think about that as like a really cool thing because I didn't have, I didn't have like clergy in my family. I'm the first minister that I know of. And, um, and yet as a pastor parent of kids, the experience they're having is very different than mine growing up. And they very early on learned all this stuff that we believe, right? But then the issue to me as a parent is, but I want them 
not to have that isolated from an experience of God's grace an experience of his spirit. Um, and they're like, I have some family members who are like allergic to faking it. Like they are allergic to, you know, pretending to go along with things that don't sound right to them or seem, um, inauthentic, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And so, yeah, I don't even know what my point is, but just you name something that I think about as a parent. And I imagine that you do too, as a parent, wanting to make sure your kids are able to not just fake it till they make it to their faith, but to actually be honest about the questions and concerns that they have. Now, I mean, if you're going to give me the option of generational faith or, or not, I'm going to choose generational, right? Yeah. I, I, I think through like, um, like my grandma on my mom's side, she, um, so many awesome memories of, uh, spending time with her. And so, uh, growing up, she lived in a, like a, this sounds bad, but she lived in a little house behind our house. Uh, so I would tell mm. people that my grandma lived in our backyard. Um, <laughs> but she had cable and, uh, we didn't have cable. And so in middle school, I loved, I told you, I loved basketball. And I found that like two or three times a week, I could go to my grandma's house and watch basketball till mm. like 11 PM. Well, my grandma wasn't staying up till 11 PM. And so she would be, uh, she'd be in her bedroom and I'm, you know, watching basketball and I have this memory of listening to her praying as she's going to sleep. And so many times she's wow. saying like Jesus name over and over and, um, knowing, mm. right. That she was praying for me and all of wow. us, like that's, I don't trade that for anything. Um, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't, but it doesn't just make it it doesn't just make it easy, right? It helps. Right. It's incredible. Right. But there are still yeah. challenges to it because it has to then become, mm-hmm. when does that become my faith, right? I can rely on the faith of my grandma. I can rely on the faith of my parents. But at some point, it has to become mine. At some point, it mm-hmm. has to become my kids. And our our boys are in church all the time. And I want them I want them to know uh, that that faith is not performance, right? Like my role as a pastor has to go beyond what happens on the platform. It has to go mm-hmm. beyond. Um, my faith goes beyond when I'm, you know, I've got my title of pastor and I'm doing my pastor uh, position. Mm-hmm. Um my faith has to be real beyond that. And, um, you know, that's what, that's what I hope they see. And, and, um, but also faith that's not inattainable, like it's, it's real. And, um, you know, our our family, like every family has its ups and downs and struggles and victories and Mm -hmm. all of those things. But, you know, going back to the book, uh, God uses all of it. Um, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't believe uh, that everything that happens is God ordained, but I do believe that God doesn't waste anything and that he can, mm-hmm. um, 
he can't even use our mistakes um, for his glory should we let him. And sometimes even when we don't, he still can. Right. Even when we don't. Dave, this seems like a really good note on which to end the conversation about grace and generational faith and all these good things. Thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you. This is fun. Thanks for listening in on my conversation with Dave Hagan about Philip Yancey's memoir, Where the Light Fell. You can follow Dave at DaveHagan8 on Instagram or follow the ministry of Carol First Church at their website. Don't worry, the link to that and other resources we mentioned are listed in the show notes. Also, if you want to support the podcast in spirit or your bank account, you can subscribe to it at yprb.substack.com. You can also give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform, share an episode on the socials, or send a link to a friend. Once again, I'm your host, Heather Weber. For more information about me, head on over to my website at heatherweber.org. That's Weber with one B. Thanks again, and don't forget to read a great book today.